anchoring your attention with whatever works best for you as an anchor, noticing the sounds coming and going from an open attention, or noticing the body sensations appearing and disappearing. or noticing the movement of the breath. Letting the attention become less scattered and becoming more still. And when you feel like the attention is relaxed and still, seeing whatever is happening moment by moment as clearly as you can. Seeing if you can fully experience what's happening and also observe it, not identify with it. Seeing if you can get out of the way and just let each moment be just what it is. moment by moment. Any questions this morning? Pardon? Maybe the moment is speeding. <laughs> I think the moment is speeding. <laughs> um. <laughs> it me of the experience I had this morning. Uh, I had a similar perception. Uh, I was looking up at the sky. It was really beautiful. And I'm seeing the colors on the trees and listening to the birds.
with something else coming on. Um, it's more intense. Uh, if I keep my attention on the first secondary object, see if I can take it, I'll tell you clearly more intense. Did, did you know where the intensity is? Did you stay with first Sometimes it's choiceless. So the attention would just move to what's more intense, and then uh, there's no decision. If there feels like a decision, uh, usually you go with what's p- predominant, meaning that you go to the more intense. Did everyone hear? Okay. Um. <laughs> what we have no control over is, in the present moment, whether something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and that the what we're what we're receiving each moment is an effect from something, it could be from thousands of lifetimes ago. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't do the best we can to care for what's happening in the moment. So I think that that's how we reconcile. If something is off in the body, we do the best we can to care for it. It doesn't mean that we become indifferent to what's happening because we don't have control over how things are appearing. You know, so in, in, in some ways, we don't have to figure out why something is pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, uh, what, or why something's happening. It's much more to try to drop in to the moment and be with the process of what's happening uh, and in that way, there's this caring for what's happening. If we don't react to what's happening, you know, which is what is getting in the way, when we react with uh, aversion or attachment, then we're creating more effect. <laughs> so that the cause is 
the aversion, the delusion, the attachment. Right. The question is, is there any feeling of responsibility or or guilt with with illness? Uh, Hopefully, one starts to see by being with the process, this is why we keep encouraging you to be with the process now, if you see aversion in the moment very clearly, you'll see it isn't anybody's. Or if you see attachment in the moment very clearly, you'll see it isn't anybody's. it's like wanting is what wants. It's not us that wants, it's wanting that wants. And aversion is what doesn't like. It's not my aversion, it's the, the not wanting that, that hates. Uh, so what one starts to see is that this whole play of what's happening is, isn't personal. You know, so there is no guilt. <laughs> Uh, the responsibility comes in in that the more you start to see that if you start to see clearly there's less reacting one becomes motivated to uh, see more clearly Yeah, I wouldn't see it so much as we dress them up. They just, in that moment, in that moment that, say a sound happens, in that moment it will be pleasant. It's simultaneous. And in, in, in that moment with a sound it will be neutral. It's simultaneously. We don't do anything to make it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It just happens simultaneously. That's why, that's where that, the saying, we have no control over what's happening, it's simultaneous. It's the sound and the pleasantness. It happens at the same time. And all we can do is to try to be as clear as we can to notice that. Uh, and, and if we're reacting, uh, to notice that we're reacting. And the embellishment happens, the proliferation happens as, as we're, the less mindful we are, the more we dress it up. You know, it's like we see the car, it's red, I wish I had a red car, or maybe when I get home. <laughs> you know, that's, that's when we start really dressing it up. <laughs> The question is, is there any benefit in looking at the train of thought that happens from the original thought to notice the embellishment? Is there any particular uh, way? Uh At times, I think it's helpful to keep just the cycling through, and other times I get caught even further. That's the danger is that it becomes. 
so much more interesting than <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think there are times when I think it's helpful at times to reflect back on what was the original source of these grand dramas and embellishments. It's helpful to reflect back. I think to have an intention to sort of look at where, how we're embellishing. Unless it's, unless you're having some kind of major psychological insight about something, you know, and it, you haven't figured it out intellectually, you know, but you've really come, you, there's been a aha. Sometimes it's helpful to reflect on that for five minutes. <laughs> Check the watch. <laughs> if it goes over five or ten minutes, you're really getting <laughs> caught. Well, you're very lucky you don't have a personal difficult person, you know. You could Yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah. So, so in terms of difficult person, what I would recommend is that when you do this difficult person that you don't pick really difficult people or really difficult situations to start with because um, what we're doing is breaking down the barriers. That might be more helpful to see. uh, You start with what's easy and then you keep strengthening in the metta what's easy. And it's the actual force of the metta which helps break down the barriers Meaning that if there's somebody or some situation that we're really angry about, metta is the opposite of anger. Uh, so tonight, if you do it, for example, I wouldn't pick maybe the most difficult place on the planet. You might pick, you know, something a little milder to start with and see if you can break down the barrier with that. Meaning that you are able to send metta. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes it's in the case that you're suggesting, it's helpful to tune into compassion, which we'll move into later, rather than metta, 
because when there's really a suffering situation, whether it's inside or outside, to say, may you be happy, it just doesn't cut the mustard. You know, it just, it isn't, it isn't touching it in the way that compassion does, which would be more caring about the suffering. So that might be a better um, way to work with those kind of situations. Uh, but we do have tremendous, usually, reactions of anger to these situations. Uh, and we can transform our reaction of anger into compassion. We can transform that reaction. It's like transforming our awareness of suffering into metta or into compassion. And we do that by, we, if we hit the anger, we back up, we back off into the dear friend or benefactor and, and develop the metta again. And you break down the barrier by having the strength of metta. It's not by, you're not breaking the barrier by banging into the anger with more anger. You know, it doesn't, you know, the, the great saying by the Buddha, Buddha, hatred does not appease hatred in this world. Have a good day. In the um, Tao hour, uh, I was wondering my posture for um, monks, and then I'll correct it. And I was wondering if you would recommend staying with this monk's posture or correcting Um. Mostly, I think it's good to straighten. Occasionally, just as an experiment, you might not, and see where you end up. (laughs) You might end up with your nose close to the floor. And the reason I say occasionally, just as an experiment to do that, having done that, it might actually make you more alert in the other times to what is now kind of those unconscious moments of slumping. Okay, the sense of opening to pain, whether it's physical or emotional, really has to do with learning how to make a bigger and bigger frame around the experience. And by that I mean sort of stepping back, opening up with the attitude or the way of relationship to the pain, it's okay. Let me feel it. And so, reminding yourself to relax into it, to relax into the opening with a big frame around it. Um, On the investigation side, 
You need to be a little careful with that because you want to be investigating to the extent of staying really alert to what is happening. So you sort of that quality of precision. It's easy for investigation to become an agenda. And so that's what you want to be cautious about. You're not aware of it. You're not being with it in order for anything to happen. But that in order to mind is very subtle. And generally with pain, the first order of business, whether it's physical or emotional, is the uh, foundation of acceptance. That's really the basis for understanding. You don't want the investigation or the subtle, bringing a subtle agenda to it to be a barrier or a a hindrance to to the acceptance. (laughs) When you feel that you really are in a place, you're simply with it. You're not with it in order for anything to happen. You really feel that there is that quality of soft acceptance. That's when you can begin to just look more precisely, you know, and sort of be using the investigation factor. And there are a few steps in it. One would be the clear recognition of what it is, whether, whether it's the clear recognition of the kind of physical sensation or the clear recognition of the specific emotion that's there. You could investigate from that place of acceptance if you really, you know, if you are settled in that place of openness, You could look to see the degree to which there's identification with that emotion or not. So that could be another another avenue of investigation. Um, Am I hooked in this? Am I identified with it? Or is there simply the emotion as another appearance of mind in the most basic level of understanding, and this, this may be hard to believe, but an emotion is really no different than a sound. It's just another phenomenon arising. The problem is we tend to personalize emotions much more than we personalize sound. We, we generally don't say, my sound. Even though we might say, I'm hearing. I mean, we might create the self in that. But we don't generally claim the sound as being self. But we almost always claim the emotion as being self. So that would be an interesting thing to look at. Why? It's equally another phenomenon arising. It's certain it's the appearance of the rainbow, a black rainbow. (laughs) But it's just certain conditions come together and this phenomenon happens. But our conditioning is so strong 
you know, to personalize it. So again, that's the kind of investigation that's interesting, but it needs to be done on the basis of acceptance. I think the judicious use of (laughs) 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 caffeine is not a problem. (laughs) But again, just the other side of that, people are very different in their sensitivities to it. And so you really have to see yourself. For some people, it just kind of gives that extra little spark of alertness. Other people's bodies really have a strong reaction to it, and it gets out of balance. So if that happens, I wouldn't take it, but otherwise it's a tried, <laughs> tried and sometimes true method. <laughs> Could you say a little bit more about how they could say acceptance is peaceful? What I mean by that is that I, I, I feel like I should be mindful of, and when I find myself drifting off, sometimes I catch myself in fantasy or revelry or whatever, I think, I find it hard to accept that's where I am at that moment. You know, it's like I should be mindful. I almost wake myself back to the breath. Or, you know, I should go back to the breath. And I'm not quite sure where one wishes it to be a picture where one accepts what's there and then when one moves oneself back. Okay, I think you're just missing one critical moment there, uh, or or not acknowledging it, which is in the moment of you're being aware that you've wandered, in that moment you are already aware. So there's no, it's not a question of pulling yourself back to awareness. You are already aware in the moment of recognizing that you've been wandering. So from that place, then it's simply a question, do you stay aware of the remnants of the thought or whatever it was in which you had been lost, <laughs> or you know, is, has that gone and you come back to the breath? But that's a very gentle uh, decision already from the place of mindfulness. So you want to recognize, that's, you want to recognize that moment. Do you follow? Yeah, and then, it, then it's really simple. It doesn't matter, because the practice is not about necessarily being with one object rather than another. It's about being aware. And since you are already aware in that moment, everything's fine. One way to help you frame or recognize that moment, you know, very often we're lost in a thought, and we become aware maybe even after the thought is over. At that moment, you could make the note remembering. Because actually, that's what's happening. You're remembering that you were thinking. So then you're just picking up the whole noting mind, noticing mind, right in that moment with the note. Oh, remembering, remembering, 
in, out. So you're right back in. Well, one of the things that hopefully one learns is uh, to stop judging it. You know, that this is the practice. If we were aware all of the time, without distraction, you wouldn't have had to come at all. <laughs> it's called meditation practice. Because that's exactly what it is. It is practicing awareness, just like you practice the piano or practice tennis. So just be careful about the perfectionist models in the mind that sets up an expectation, well, I should be mindful all the time. That's ridiculous. There, it's it's a wonderful idea. (laughs) Maybe at some point that will happen. But we are practicing that. So that way you take delight in the fact in those moments when you realize you've been lost, smile enough, oh yeah, I got it now. Even if it's just for the next two or three breaths, and then again. Okay, it's two separate practices, and but the difference is not what you said it is. <laughs> it's a different difference. <laughs> the difference being that in vipassana, the idea we're not we're not uh, trying to cultivate any particular emotion, but rather just staying with this open, choiceless awareness, noticing the flow of phenomena, the flow of experience. So whatever comes, our job is simply to be aware of it. In the metta practice or any of the Brahma Viharas, we are actually choosing, yeah, we're going to we're going to cultivate this particular emotional state. But that doesn't mean that we're practicing identifying with it. Even in doing the metta practice, it's not it's to develop the feeling and to feel it to be completely, to allow the feeling to suffuse the mind, the body, so it gets very strong. But the identification with that is still something extra. And so we can be cultivating the metta without the sense of it belonging to me, belonging to self. And just as, you know, an example of that, which, the example of all great enlightened states, if we think of the Buddha, you know, who it said, you know, was, had perfected love and compassion and 
all these wonderful qualities of mind, but there was no self in any of that. There was no identification with that. It was just the recognition, this state is wholesome, this state is beneficial. Let it be developed. Is that clear to you? So there is a choice. The difference is that there is definitely a choice we're making to cultivate this state, but it need not be done, and it, it really shouldn't be done, from a place of identification with it. Right, right. Yeah. No, it is, because metta is... You know, meditation is divided into two main tracks, the awareness practices and concentration practices. In the concentration practices, you are choosing a particular object to focus on. It could be the breath, it could be a sound, it could be a mantra, it could be the 32 parts of the body. The Buddha listed 40 subjects of concentration meditation, including metta. So there is, there is that choice, and that's characteristic of samadhi practice. It's like it's the development of a one-pointedness as opposed to sort of an open awareness you know, of whatever is arising. So in that sense, you're correct. It, it really is it's two different ways of practice. They both feed one another. So they're not at all in conflict, but they are different. Okay, this afternoon uh, at the 3.45 sitting, we'll have uh, time for more questions. Questions? Do you have this one here? I've got a question, maybe a two-part series of questions formulating in my mind about conditioning and deconditioning. And it seems like if a, say, a sensation arises, the perception, feeling, mental formation, if you can catch it at the level of feeling, perhaps that mental formation won't arise and further increase. But to decondition the mind. You have to kind of get down to the level of, the perce- of perception, conceptualization, it seems like. And maybe, but that, suppose you flashed on emptiness, no self, and all that, but still, it seems it would take some time for that to dissolve. You're not going to get rid of all that conditioning just like that. Or not. <laughs> you know what I'm getting at? It seems like it would take some time for that to, the feelings would still come up if your understanding was pretty complete. The feelings and perceptions will still be working in there for a time, maybe eventually they won't. Right. Right. Um, Did you hear the question and did you understand it? (laughs) He's asking about the conditioning of the mind, which has occurred, we'll say, in the past in this way. Sensory uh, experience has been felt as pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, and 
in our unawareness or blindness, we have liked, disliked, or ignored that experience. And from that liking, have attached to that pleasure, or from the disliking, have uh, become averse to that displeasure, or from the neutrality, have basically been unclear about what that experience is. And the habit of all those conditionings has resulted in a personality, or something like that. And he said, asked, how can we decondition the mind? Or does deconditioning happening happen over a period of time, or is it instantaneous with clear seeing of anicca, anatta, and dukkha? Is that the question? Essentially. Sort of like that's in it. Yeah. I don't think we're trying to decondition the mind. We're trying to decondition our habitual blind reactions to sensory stimuli, sensory including the mind. So that when we experience anything, there is a process where we feel, we judge liking, disliking, we attach or averse, and then we think about, reflect over and over and over what it is we've experienced. Really hate it, push away. When we do see the feeling tone of the experience, well, let me just say that when we begin practice, what we notice is our strong attachments and aversions. And after we work with them for some period of time, we get down to a level of noticing maybe the liking and disliking before we attach or become averse. And if we work with liking and disliking, then we can get down to, and the mind becomes sharp enough to see the pleasant or unpleasant quality of experience before we get to liking, before we get to attachment. We get down to the pleasant or unpleasant perception of experience, at which time it's very difficult to formulate thoughts, ideas of permanence, sukha, satisfactoriness, and uh, a firm sense of self. Very, it, it's impossible to. When your, fee, when your perception or your recognition is at the level of feeling, tone, in each moment. So it's not a matter of, does it slowly happen? It happens in the moment that you see clearly or feel, notice the feeling before the uh, emotional reaction. All the time there was feeling stuff coming up. No. <laughs> Feelings in the terms, in the sense of pleasant or unpleasant yeah. or neutral. No, they do not stop. Even the Buddha, fully, who had fully deconditioned his attachments and aversions and confusions, still had feeling of pleasant and unpleasantness. So that when he got sick, or when he had his headaches or backaches, he felt unpleasant. What he didn't do was react aversively to it with displeasure in the mind. So the feeling of the feeling tone of the sensory experience still present, still arising. Yeah. And that, that's why it's so important to begin to see in your own practice that 
the experience of pain or unpleasantness is not bad practice. That's not what we're not trying to get rid of unpleasant experience. There's, it's real important to begin to distinguish between dukkha, unpleasantness, and personalizing it as mine. Real important to, I mean, that's where the the space of freedom lies in seeing that dukkha happens. I don't have to suffer with it. I don't think we'd find universal agreement with that in this room. (laughs) You know, as we go along, it just gets smoother and subtler and more pleasant. Not always. Not always, really. (laughs) Throughout that imaginary uh, (laughs) future. it comes as well as increasing subtlety to the perception of dukkha also. That also comes, you know, that that increasing sense of pleasantness or less okayness comes. And also there comes an increasing subtlety of the perception of dukkha. So that even you know, what might now feel very pleasant and uh, quite nice may not look that way at another level of insight. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we need a a full talk on dukkha. Just what what that all means. (laughs) Pardon?
And a couple steps later, I thought, well, that's too long, that's this. <laughs> and just as that thought arose, the voice started moving towards me. And she said, stop, and I looked. It was actually the struggle of this I get the point. I got it. I got it. Let, let me just inquire. Did you note seeing when you saw the first what's whatever hanging down the down the road? Did you note seeing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So then you went on to a long train of thought about that and Halloween and kids and all that. Did you note all those thoughts, all those feelings, all those perceptions? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> it can happen that when we don't note initial uh, sensory input, we can get caught in a tremendous story about what's happening. And it may end up being humorous, and it may not. And. Um, there definitely seems to be a place for humor in, in spiritual practice. And often, just like that, that things are hilarious or uh, ridiculous or whatever. But, and I think it happens, uh, to give you the Abhidhamma model of humor, is that as the mind becomes clear and more kind of, uh, transparent and crystalline in its perception, then it becomes very light. And humor often is a very light, buoyant quality in the mind and body. And as we become more sensitive to our mind and body, it becomes very, our perception of it is very light. And uh, sometimes it can take nothing to just set off that lightness bubbling along. So the Abhidhamma model is that lightness, pliancy of mind gets highly developed and, and then uh, some thought arises. Uh, I don't think it can be very serious all the time. It'll just happen. One, one last brief question. Quality of almost some relief that the bell or 
There, there might be some confusion about intensity and continuity. We can be very continuous and not be um, locked into some attachment to intensity. <laughs> but often, you know, we, we, we're kind of intensity junkies. And, you know, if it's not really intense, then nothing's happening. And uh, in walking particularly, uh, because there's a lot of movement, uh, the, the intensity of physical uh, stuff is much subtler than in sitting. And so the continuity can still be there, but the intensity uh, may be different, maybe a different experience of intensity in that continuity. So I would encourage you to, to really check to see that you're connecting your attention to every moment and sustaining your attention on the experience of every moment to uh, build up the continuity. And uh, walking can get very intense also. If, you, if you're looking to make walking intense, really you know, connect and sustain your attention with each uh, phase of each step and each turning and each stopping. And it'll get intense. Real quick. You might, oh no, uh, I was going to say, you might reflect on the perception of continuity experiencing anicca. Anicca being discontinuity of phenomena. But don't reflect on that. I, maybe there will be a talk about that. <laughs> it's, time, it's time for practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.